Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Hello runners, welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth. I'm super excited to have you here today for our topic discussion, why am I getting slower? With my friends and fellow coaches, Amanda Brooks of Run to the Finish and Laura Norris of Laura Norris Running, they are awesome as individuals and they have recently collaborated to create the Tread Lightly podcast. So if you are a fan of running podcasts, which statistically I bet you are, I'd recommend checking out their work. They're both incredibly knowledgeable, kind people, and we covered some really great ground in this episode that I hope you will find at least helpful as a jumping off point for if you find yourself in this situation of, why am I getting slower? Amanda Brooks and Laura Norris, welcome back to the show, both of you. First time you're on together. I'm super excited to have you here. Super excited to be back. It's always great to get another chance to talk running with another coach. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us today. It's an absolute pleasure. So hopefully longtime listeners of my show will be familiar with you in, as individuals because you've both been on my show before. Laura, you've been on twice now, I think. And as I said before, you're also my coach, right? So mm-hmm. you and I communicate fairly regularly. And Amanda, yes. you and I chat all the time, it feels like, in DMs, which is super fun. But you are have collaborated and you actually have your own podcast out now. So before we get started on our topic today, I think what you're doing is awesome. And I want you to tell people about it so they can listen to it if they haven't listened to it yet. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we started a podcast called Tread Lightly, and it really came from Laura and I going on runs together and realizing just as two coaches talking, man, I think people would get a lot of value out of hearing these discussions. Um, And especially even for me, I'm like, I've been a coach for over 11 years. But when Laura dives into the science, I geek out. Yes. Yeah. And it, it came about, I, f- I finished my master's program in like, finally, um, that took about one and a half years. And it was also like, oh, I have time to do something else. Let's do something fun. And it's been really fun recording the podcast and, you know, we're still growing, but the reception has been really good. I think a lot of runners enjoy having deep dives into topics that they may see briefly touched on on social media or that may have more nuance that experienced coaches can really dive into. And I find, you know, obviously, because that's a lot of what I do as well, it's it's so fun as a coach to, you know, kind of to really take that science. What is this? What is the research that I'm reading? What is it telling me? How do I see this applied to my athletes? You know, it really forces us as coaches to really create a broader and deeper understanding of the topics that we're diving into. And it's easy on social media for someone to take one study and broadly apply it to everything. And so I do feel like some of what we do a lot of times is like, hey, this has been all over social media. Here's what you need to know. (laughs) Yes, yes. And to everyone who's listened, thank you so much for listening. I'll also say it's also very frustrating when you are doing the research and the research kind of concludes as like the, we just don't have enough research yet. And that's always the fun kind of like, well, can, can maybe you get on that and, and do some more research? Cause I'd like to learn some more about this. <laughs> oh yeah. And the thing is, is they're probably already on that research. It's just such a lag of turning like research into published peer reviewed studies. And so sometimes you're like, oh, I want to learn more. And you're like, oh, maybe the researcher is doing more, but funding is getting in their way or the peer review process. And even then when new studies come out, they're not always easily accessible to people, or maybe we're just not hearing about them. But a lot of new studies have a lot of really useful info. 
So today we are talking about everybody's, I think, least favorite topic, but a really important one I think that we talk about is what happens when a runner is or feels like they're getting slower. Now, this is not this is not an episode about the natural kind of age-related decline that we all experience as we run through our decades of life. We're not going to be as fast at 90 as we were when we were 25, right? But this is about um, changes in your performance that are unexpected or like, I, I feel like I'm doing everything right and I'm not, and I feel like I'm actually going backwards, not forwards. Um, and we're going to talk about the variety of situations in which that might occur and some of the reasons behind it and uh, when when to like not freak out and just kind of just stay the course and when it's time to seek some professional help and kind of everything in between. So I'm going to softball this question into you. Um, is this something that you've seen before in athletes that you have worked with in the past? I feel like it's one of the most common things when you are onboarding a new athlete. Um, I feel like I hear this a lot. And oftentimes, like you said, there are a million potential reasons. One of the really easy ones is you are actually correctly doing your easy runs. And so they have gotten slower. Um, So I'm often sort of saying, cool, your easy run is slower, but what's happening when we do hard workouts? What's your race actually doing? Um, so sometimes we're getting focused on the wrong number. We're focusing on our easy pace when we're actually, that's not the pace we're really concerned about. Yes. Yeah. I've seen it often with athletes also. And usually what Amanda said first comes to mind. The other things I think is, okay, have you had blood work done recently? So many athletes struggle with low ferritin and that is absolutely going to manifest in a lower exercise ceiling, really struggling. I've seen a lot of athletes also come to me pretty overtrained where they're not getting faster because they've just dug themselves into a hole that's going to take a while to get out of. A hundred percent the overtraining. Sorry, Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I think because we get in that gray zone and we're so determined to make that easy pace a certain number. Um, So yeah, agree with all of that. Yeah, I see it a lot too. And I'll have people say, come to me and say, well, you know, last year I ran this half marathon in this time and this year I ran it again. And I feel, here's the interesting one. And they say, well, I, I feel like I've learned more about running and I feel like I am slowing down for my easy runs and yet I ran it slower this year. And then, and then it takes that dive into, and this is not something we can necessarily do like for free in DMs, right? This is when it comes into individual coaching. But this is when you have to do that deeper dive of like, okay, but tell me about, the race specifically, was it hot? Were you underfueled? Were you dehydrated? Like all these things, because I feel like there are, like you said, Amanda, you know, runners tend to focus on these very specific numbers that they think are important, that are, that they think are a reflection of where their fitness is going and they're not understanding the context. So it's like, if your easy runs are getting slower, that's actually not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe they needed to get slower. If you had one bad race or one slower race, that doesn't mean that your entire body of fitness is, is going down the toilet. It could just mean you had one bad day. So, I mean, I think first comes to mind is that sometimes when a runner comes to us and says, help, I'm getting slower, they're actually not. They're just completely focusing on the wrong thing. A hundred percent. And like you said, races are tough because it's this one snapshot of many, many months of work. And there are so many things that cannot go your way on race day. Sometimes you could just be having one of those days. We have all had the day where you run and you're like, I'm amazing. And the next day where you're like, why does my body hate me? So it just happens sometimes. And I do think it's really tough because we put a lot of pressure on the race day to be that thing. And Almost anyone who's been running a long time will tell you I've had great races and bad races and rarely is it just a straight line upwards. Yes, yes. And also sometimes athletes will like obsess over the bad and ignore the good. So they'll be like, my marathons haven't been going well. But then you look at it and you're like, well, your 5Ks though are going well. And we have this like easy psychological focus on the poor and the ability to ignore where there might actually be progress. And it's just because the progress isn't showing up right away where we want it to be. 
And this is when having a coach is really helpful to like, or at least not necessarily working one-on-one with a coach long-term, but to have somebody review it and be like, it's okay. Like you're, you're doing okay, right? We're, we're heading in the right direction. You just kind of need to keep doing what you're doing, but let's talk about, let's say we are, are onboarding a one-on-one athlete. We'll use this kind of as a framework of, of approaching this kind of troubleshooting, this conversation. And let's say, you know, we kind of dive deeper and Amanda, you mentioned that overtraining, that kind of gray zone, Laura, you mentioned blood work, you know, let's talk about what what we're saying kind of what we're skirting around the issue is that you've essentially you're doing you're doing more than you can recover from and in some capacity you are now deficient in areas which is impacting your fitness because so often when we're self-coached or we're coached by somebody who is maybe not as good at what they should be doing right you can actually it is entirely possible to do so much that you end up going backwards because you are overstressing and your body starts to then break down under the weight of that stress a million percent and especially as someone who i now work with so so many women in their 40s 50s and 60s we grow up with more is better. Like, oh, if, if running 20 miles is good, then running 30 miles, 40 miles, 50 miles, 60 miles is even better. But there is a point where you have so much happening in your life, in your hormones, in your body, that now more is just more and it's not better. And it really is that onboarding is this deep dive process of like, I've, I don't need to just see what's happening on paper. I need to better understand what's happening with you overall in your life. What's your body? How's it responding? And I think too often we want to just look at the training plan itself and consider that as the only thing, but it's really a bigger holistic look. It is. When I onboard athletes, my questionnaire, as you know, Elizabeth, includes questions of what's your job? How much stress do you deal with? Do you travel often for work? Usually I'll try to figure out how many kids an athlete has and what their ages are. Things that really help us look at the whole picture, look at the allostatic load, the like chronic accumulation of stress and life demands that this athlete might have because it's also like I could have one person come to me and say, hey, I'm getting slower and maybe their situation is different because they don't have a lot of life stress and we have to dive into maybe medical reasons or training reasons as someone could come in and say, hey, I'm getting slower. And you're like, well, it might be that 50 miles per week is too much for you when you have three kids and a full time job and all these other things. That's tough, though, because, you know, Amanda, like you said, you know, we're we're conditioned, I think, especially, let's say, women of a certain age um, to think that more is better and that the the kind of implicit message when it comes to that is that if you can't hack it at a certain level, you are weak, you are less than, you're not trying hard enough. I see this so often when I work with athletes and they're like, I just think I'm not trying hard enough. And I'm like, you are trying plenty hard. It has absolutely nothing to do with trying hard. This is this is about you're doing, you are asking yourself to do something that is not realistic for what you're trying to achieve. I think it's this mindset shift of rest is training because it rest is just, I'm not doing something and I'm not doing something means I'm not trying. And so shifting into that idea that rest is training and also just getting women to be comfortable with their bodies in the sense of like, you have hormones that are different than all of your male counterparts and yours are changing and going crazy at this phase of life and your body is stressed out. It's really... I feel like gratifying when I can get women who have been so hard charging to step back and, hey, we're going to do yoga a couple days a week. And they're like, but yoga, uh, breathing, not sweating. And then all of their runs feel better. Their races are better because they're actually doing a little bit less. And of course, there's, you know, there's a line to that. We don't want to do nothing. Um, but finding that right balance for the body to stay feeling really strong and mentally feeling strong. Yeah. And I've seen that with a lot of athletes. We scale back and they break through. Think of it almost as like a slingshot effect. Sometimes you have to pull back to have that spring forward. And like one athlete I think of in particular, I've worked with her since 2018. 
And when she came to me, she was in a PhD program and she was doing decently high mileage, trying to do well in her marathons and marathons kept going poorly. She was overtrained by race day. We pulled back to four days of running, two days of lifting, one day rest. And it took a while because she had a baby in the pandemic. But then she like took her marathon PR down to 315 and was second woman overall at her race. And I know that's probably a more extreme example, but it shows that, yes, sometimes it's not that less training, it's more. It's that more recovery is more because it's training plus recovery equals adaptation. Let's talk about some of the normal fluctuations one can expect to experience in a properly periodized training year. Um, And I think maybe, Laura, I know you're so good about doing the research about what different conditions and kind of phases of training and, you know, appropriate percentages of detraining, kind of that natural ebb and flow of what our performance looks like. Because somebody might say, well, is it normal to slow down X amount in the summer? Is it normal to have this much change in my fitness if I'm, you know, if if I'm in the post-marathon recovery or post-race recovery period? So, you know, what is your, because some people do like metrics and and talking about numbers that are appropriate does is soothing for them. What do you find is an appropriate general fluctuation in fitness as we go through a training year? And let's say this is somebody who's training for two A races, maybe one's a marathon, maybe one's a half marathon, and they live in a place with four seasons, right? So they have very hot summers, but they're also training through cold weather in the winter. Just to put you on the spot here with all this information. (laughs) (laughs) To put me on the spot. Well, I don't want to necessarily assign an exact number to it because I guarantee you there will be people who are like, well, Laura said 5% and I'm at 5.6%. What's going wrong? Um, But I think I'm at 5.05% and I'm, I'm, you know, like, okay, calm down people. These are general guidelines. But I think it's important to think of it like, yes, in a whole year. So you're not going to be at peak fitness. Really, when we think about it, like hard training and a peak can't be maintained for much more, I would say, for a recreational athlete, 20 weeks. Some pros may be able to extend that a little further, but they have extra recovery at their hands. So that's, you know, not even half a year will you'll be at your peak fitness. And I think it's good to think of having those valleys in between those peaks and knowing that some necessary detraining will come during those times. So in terms of numbers, we can think about detraining as something that occurs as a necessity in your off season. And if you were to completely take time off of training, you might be looking at a fairly serious reduction in VO2 max, maybe up to 14%, but VO2 max is also not the only predictor of that. VO2 max being your max or of a capacity with genetic contribution. Um, you will, and time, like, serious time off, we're talking like yeah. what, like four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. Like if I ran a race and then just stopped running completely for several weeks, like how long would it take for me to lose approximately that much of my VO2 max? Four to eight weeks. And it's kind of linear over those four to eight weeks. So you'll see big changes around four weeks, then more around eight weeks. Eight weeks is when you would begin to experience a statistically significant change in cardiac remodeling that will result in an actual loss of fitness. Everything else before eight weeks can be pretty smoothly gained. And that's talking pretty large cessation of activity. The study that I'm thinking of um, used Boston Marathon athletes and um, it was in the Journal of Applied Physiology. I think it was a 2018 study. And these athletes did one-tenth of their training load. I'm fairly certain that they didn't completely stop training because otherwise they would have had no study volunteers. Um, but so if we see that, that it takes that much detraining to elicit a serious loss of fitness, if you take an eight-week off-season but you're doing 50% mileage load, you're really not losing that much fitness. It's probably mostly peak fitness. It's probably some neuromuscular sharpness. In reality, things like your lactate threshold, your velocity at VO2 max are maybe only dropping by like 1% to 2%, and you're going to regain that in training. And not only that, but it's better to take that step back, have that 1% to 2% loss, than to end up in a state of overtraining where for a variety of mechanisms, you've just done too much for too long, and your body stalls out and regresses. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
This, though, for anybody who's run, especially longer distances, right, raced a half marathon, certainly raced a marathon, that first run back after the race is always like the, did I really just run that race distance? I mean, for me, my first run back after a marathon, which is usually like maybe 30 minutes, I think to myself, um, did I seriously just run a marathon? Because this feels hard. <laughs> A hundred percent. I think we have all had that feeling. And usually to me, that's a reminder that though I might mentally be ready to run, my body is actually still working really hard to recover from what I asked it to do. And I think we feel like, ah, it should bounce back pretty quickly, but like 26 miles when you are going, sorry, let me not forget the point too. 26.2 <laughs> when you are pushing your boundaries is breaking you down in ways that you have never gotten close to in training because training breaks you down, but not so far that you need these two plus weeks to recover. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, you you should never be doing anything so hard in training that is the equivalent uh, demand on your body as your race will be, especially for double digit races. Oh yeah. And I think it's really helpful to also break down what's really happening to your fitness after that. So like, yes, you will have a reduction in cardiac pulmonary capacity, your heart and your lungs for about a week after a marathon. If you're resuming after a week, like you have neuromuscular fitness that has lost, your creatine kinase and other biomarkers of muscle damage might take about 14 days to return to baseline. Although I do think part of that may be contingent upon how well you fuel your marathon, the better you fuel the lower those biomarkers do tend to be afterwards. But still, if you want to have a peak, you have to have a valley following. It's just an absolute necessity. And I know, Elizabeth, you mentioned like summer running versus winter running earlier as well. And I think maybe not exact percentages, but sort of understanding that when you're running in the heat, say it's even 60 to 75 degrees, so it's not super hot, your heart rate is still up to four beats higher than it was when it was a little bit cooler. So that's four beats more that your body thinks it's working tougher from the very start of your run, which means it's going to progressively feel harder. When you're getting into these crazy temps we've seen this summer, 75 to 90 degrees, it's 10 beats per minute higher. And then you add in humidity and it could add up to another 10 beats. So if you feel like you're getting slower, it is because your body is working so extremely hard to try and cool itself down, to do all of the effort that you're asking when it is so warm. Something that I've been doing a lot of with my group training right now, because it is July and we have athletes all over the world, but specifically over the country, especially in the South. But I mean, it's been really, really kind of weirdly hot and humid in New England. Normalizing, yeah, you may need to slow down way more than you had initially planned on. And also talking about the role that dehydration can play when we are running in hot and humid conditions. And kind of looking at some different studies that look at, you know, how much you might slow down on per mile based on the conditions and kind of putting some math behind it and really like helping them understand that, you know, yeah, you might run 10 minutes per mile for your easy runs when it's 55 degrees outside. But when it's 95 degrees outside, we're looking at, 11, 11, 30, maybe 12 minutes per mile. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because that is simply how much those conditions might affect you. And, and like, you just have to honor where you are and make sure you're hydrating and make sure you're fueling and, you know, really learning how to detach what you feel about certain paces when the conditions are like that. Yes. And that's why I'm a huge advocate sometimes for athletes training by time. I know that's how I put a lot of your training is, it allows that wiggle room where if it's just time and intensity, which is how we would gauge training load in more academic settings, volume and intensity, not pace and distance, that gives you the wiggle room to be, oh, today it's super hot. So for my hour easy run, I'm going to just go easy. And if it's a 12 versus a 10, I still checked off the box of one hour easy. 
Yeah, for people who are into spreadsheets, and I used to do this too, is I would manually calculate my own, you know, the uh, tramp training impulse, basically training load. You can take, you know, time and intensity. I'd use heart rate. You could you can calculate this stuff so you can see the equivalent of if I'm doing this much time at this much intensity, even if I cover less distance because it's hot out, the training stimulus, the training load, the training volume is the same. And I think that's the key there is instead of being so worried about the pace, what is the training stimulus I'm supposed to get from this workout? And you're still getting that by sticking to the appropriate effort, whether that's easy or if it's a hard workout and your hard workout is slower than planned, but did you get to the intensity level? So you're still getting like what we hoped out of that. So now we've kind of covered situations in which you're not actually getting slower. You're just slowing down because of of whatever phase of training that you're currently in or what the conditions call for. Right. So I think we've just gone through some examples of like there is nothing wrong with you. You're not actually, quote unquote, losing, losing fitness and getting slower in that regard. You are just in a phase of training or training through conditions which necessitate you to be running you know, slower or doing a little bit less than you were previously. But now let's dive into some situations where a runner might actually be losing some fitness. And Laura, I want to start off by um, referencing what you said about, look, if you were to take four, six, eight weeks completely off, you would start to lose fitness. I see uh, a fair number of, and we're, look, we're all recreational runners, right? We're all hobby joggers at the end of the day, right? It's what we do. But I do see a fair number of um, people who run, especially, you know, participate in kind of flagship races, especially run Disney races or maybe some rock and roll events, kind of these large social events who essentially will train for one race a year and then like and then like take a couple months off after the race. So they'll train 12, 16, maybe 20 weeks for a race and then like not exercise or run at all for several months after their race until it's time to start training for the same race the following year. And then they are wondering, well, why am I not getting faster or why am I getting slower over time? Um, and I will say sometimes I think why why those runners end up doing this is because they're essentially overtraining in their training cycle because they're following the wrong type of training for them specifically. So they are so burnt out by the end, they like need to take a couple months off. But also that, you know, understanding the effect that taking that much time off will have if you are trying to make that kind of long-term progress. I mean, yeah, that's a very great point because again, like we talked about, you're going to begin to experience remodeling of the heart. So changes in your ventricle sizes, changes in how your heart pumps out blood flow and to the working muscles. And those changes are going to take a long time to return. And for a lot of those athletes, they also then are forgetting the strain that it places on their musculoskeletal system that within eight weeks, your bones aren't used to being loaded like they were anymore. Your muscles are not as have enough elasticity or strength as they did before under load you lost that ability to tolerate time under tension with running. So we have these eight weeks off and then these people try to jump right back into a training plan for their next race and they're not allotting the proper time for these very real physiological remodelings to occur. As if, say, maybe they took two weeks off after that race but then got back into a base building plan. You're not losing that cardiac remodeling. You're not losing that musculoskeletal loading tolerance it becomes easier. And then you probably actually won't reach your next race feeling burnt out. It's just taking the time to break that cycle. Yeah. I often point people to kind of looking at elite runners in the sense of they aren't getting faster from one training cycle. Those marathon runners that we're seeing winning races, it has been years and years and years of consistently building. And yes, they may take a month off after their races because of the crazy volume that they're doing. Um, But when we look at ours and we're like, okay, well, every year I take off multiple months. I'm making it harder for me to stack one year onto the next year, onto the next year. And I am getting older each year. So your body is changing every year and you're not stacking the years. So it does become harder to see that progress. But I think that's kind of like a nice way to look at it is to sort of think, well, gosh, if even the elite runners have to stack years 
then me as a hobby jogger, if my goal is still to get better, I have to stack time too. And I think a lot of people, you know, especially, you know, everybody kind of comes to running and has a different relationship with running and we all have different goals. But, you know, even if your goal is to run the Dopey Challenge every year at Disney World or to run your, you know, the Rock and Roll Nashville, like whatever it is, you know, because there are a ton of people who are like, I really only race once a year for this one big event that's really important to me. You know, you're just going to have a I don't, and a, a better time. And I don't mean this by saying you're going to have a faster finish time. I mean, you're going to have a more enjoyable experience with your training and in your race. If you are more consistent with your training year round. A million percent. I don't race very often, but I train basically the same, whether I am planning to race or not. And so then when you're into race training, it feels better. It's more enjoyable. You have the opportunity to push a little more in certain places because you've been consistent. Let's talk about factors that all else being equal on paper, an athlete is training at the appropriate training load and intensity distribution for their current phase of life, but they are lacking in areas that are supporting their recovery or their ability to train. And by that, we mentioned blood work. We can talk about underfueling. We can talk about, this is a really big one that I see a lot, runners simply misunderstanding how much their life stress is impacting their total stress load. Because this is something I think that individuals, regular people are really bad at understanding is simply how good or how poor their, I would say, recovery support structures are. I mean, it's really hard when you're on social media and you see, well, she's doing it. She has a job and a family and she's marathon training and hitting a PR. So you do sort of internalize that as like, well, of course I should be able to do that too, but you have no idea what else is actually happening over there. And we are generally, like you said, really bad at sort of being honest with what our life stress is. So saying like, yeah, my job is stressful. I'm working 80 hours a week. Instead, we're like, well, people just work. Like you just have to figure it out. And true, but maybe now is just not the best time to marathon train. And that's okay too. You're still a runner. So I do think it is important kind of at the beginning of the season or when setting that race goal to have like a really honest discussion with yourself or with your coach or with your family that says, this goal is super important to me, but I know that in order to make it happen, I need X, Y, and Z. And I do find that too. People don't always ask for what they need. So saying to those people around them, I really need help with this. This would save me time or make things easier. And they're generally surprised when people sort of say, oh, okay, I just didn't realize that would be useful. Yes. And I think people also really either downplay or underestimate the importance of nutrition in training load tolerance in recovery. A lot of runners do come into running for weight loss, or even if they didn't deliberately start running because of weight loss, a lot of us grew up in a diet culture, thinner is better society. And we carry, especially as women, carry the idea that we should take up as little space as possible. When really the research shows over and over again that carbohydrate intake and protein intake in your overall energy availability will affect your ability to adapt to training, to tolerate to training, to be able to train without digging yourself into a hole. And that's part of the balance of life stress also is sometimes if you have a lot going on or if your job involves you being on your feet all day, you might even need more energy intake than an athlete with a similar date training load who has a sedentary date job and no crazy toddler running around the house. It's amazing to me when you, your body can be so resilient, right? And I obviously like putting it through periods of stress that's can, is, is tipping us past the point of where it's beneficial, right? Cause we kind of have use stress and de-stress and I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before. Um, but it's amazing when you have your nutrition dialed in when you are getting enough sleep when you are managing your training load 
even if your life stress then goes through a period of ebb and flow, like let's say that you are moving, right? You were selling your house and moving to a new house, or I've had athletes lose a loved one, um, you know, go through that period of extreme loss and grief. You know, of course, we're going to scale back the training, but we also have to make sure like in this time when we know, when we know that you are experiencing a higher than normal amount of stress in this one area that we are paying extra attention to how the rest of everything is being supported. You can you can get away with so much if you are eating appropriately and getting enough sleep. Like it is amazing with obviously it's not going to, you know, fix everything. You can still do too much. It's not saying it's the panacea for everything, but it's those two things, the sleep and the food are like the the things that most people like chop out of their life or are intentionally skimping on because they've been taught, like you said, that less is better. And oh, but they sleep four hours a night. I'll sleep four hours a night uh, and not understanding what that's doing to them. The sleep piece is one that definitely is is a pet peeve for me. Um, And it's very, very difficult, especially for new moms. And so 1000% understand there are phases where it's not your choice. It's just what's happening. But there becomes a point where I see it turning into a choice and it's I'm choosing to be busy, 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 busy and have to get all these things done so I can't sleep. And it kind of takes me back to high school when that was the game you played of like, who has more to do? I stayed up till 2 a.m. to do my paper. Well, I never went to sleep to do my paper. Um And it is a choice and there is like some psychology around why they are not putting in the time to sleep. And a lot of it is thinking like I should be productive and sleep's not that productive. But man, I slide into bed happy every night. Like I am excited to be there. (laughs) Yes. And like going off of that for a lot of my athletes who are new moms, like we're not training for something big. And I'm always very hesitant to be like, oh yeah, let's do that postpartum marathon within a year. Like A, they'll be like, oh, well, Cara Goucher did it. Well, because Nike took away her pay. How, when would you react if your livelihood was taken away? And she has come out and said, yeah. I really, like, I, I hated having to do that. Like, mm-hmm. I really yeah. wish I hadn't done that. And it may have contributed to future injuries that she experienced. Like, yeah. this was a bad idea all around. So just because she did it doesn't mean you should do it. <laughs> exactly. But like, when you're going through periods of like being a new mom, back off your training, like for so many reasons. I think we uphold this like, oh, look at this mom who's pushing her stroller around the track at nine weeks postpartum for the Boston Marathon. Like, oh my God, moms are under so much pressure already. Just sleep, run a little bit, and no training will be there when you get past that phase of life. How often, I just kind of, I'm curious because I know the answer, I know my answer to this question. How often do you see a runner, you're onboarding a runner who is experienced like, look, we're looking at your, your training and racing history and we are seeing a decline in fitness over the year, over the period that they're coming to you in the past 12, 24, 36, whatever it is, you know, they're saying, I'm, I feel like I am getting slower. Like, look at all this stuff. And it's, it's the food and the sleep and the stress. Like it's not anything wrong with their training per se. They're not out there trying to do Jakob Ingebrigtsen's training. They're running a quote unquote appropriate amount for where they currently are in their, in their life phase, but they simply are not backing it up with the nutrition, the sleep, the stress management. I think it's pretty common, but it's like a super hard conversation because People don't want to hear you need to eat more and you need to sleep more. Um, I feel like (laughs) those conversations are hard when you are first taking someone on. The longer you've been coaching someone, the more they're like, I trust you and I'll listen to you. But initially they're like, no, no, just tell me what workouts I should be doing. Um, So you have to say it, but getting people to actually take the advice right out of the gate, I feel like is hard sometimes. It is. And that's often in those scenarios, I'll step people back. Like you came to me for a reason until you see a sports RD or at least take some of the guidance that I give you. Um, Again, my master's degree focused on sport nutrition. I'm a certified sport nutritionist. So it's like a gray area of where I can help, but I can at least tell them, hey, maybe eat more. Um, We're backing off training until then. And the really hard part is if an athlete doesn't disclose this, I have had scenarios with an athlete won't disclose that they're sleeping only four hours and that they're under eating and skipping meals. 
And that's where it's really hard. And that's why I think full transparency with your coach, if you're going to have a coach, you need to be open and honest with them. Otherwise, they won't be able to help you fully. It's tough, too, when you have an athlete come to you and they're in this situation, right? And and we're kind of doing kind of the onboarding initial period of working with a new athlete. It is that getting to know you, right? It's like, you've represented yourself to me as this athlete. Now we're going to take a couple weeks and like see what's actually happening. And I can take a look at what's happening in real time. And we can ha- start having that conversation. But I mean, there are some people who are like, well, now, now I'm paying for coaching, I'm expecting you to, I'm expecting like fancy hard stuff. I'm expecting you to program more work. I'm expecting to get faster immediately. And I'm like, that's not how this works. <laughs> that's not how this works. And obviously managing the expectation when you're working with a new athlete is super important, setting the expectation right off the bat. But I think some athletes come to coaching and obviously, you know, for a variety of reasons, mostly because they realize what they're trying to achieve on their own, they simply can't get there without some outside help. Um, but then they expect us to like program in these like bonkers, crazy hard workouts and like ask them to do a bunch of stuff. I'm like, that's not what I'm here to do. Your training might not look that much different from what you're doing on your own. But like, the point is that I am now in charge of your training and I will make adjustments as appropriate. And we can have that dialogue about how you're feeling and how you're progressing. And it's not an overnight change almost on anything. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it makes sense. You are paying money. And any of us who pay for something want to see a result. Um, But I have found myself in that like, okay, your strength workouts are going to look pretty similar here week after week. This is not like the crazy brand new, super difficult strength workout every single week program that you're seeing on Instagram because I actually want to see you get stronger. And so we have to repeat some things and it is a little bit of just getting everyone, yeah, to shift into that, like, okay, it's maybe not that everything has to be brand new. It's just that, like, it has to be looked at from a different angle and tweaked to fit where I am right now. Yeah. We always want to leave room for cream or however you want to phrase it. Like, you need to get through your training weeks, especially the early ones, feeling like you could do more. And I think when an athlete sometimes like, hey, I feel like I could do more, I'm like, good let's hang out here then. And because you want to feel like you could do more, you don't want to get to your marathon and be like, I left my entire race in my training. What about when we're, and this is again, a tough conversation. There's obviously, there's no answer here because the answer is always going to be, it depends. But when working with an athlete, even one who's being coached, um, and they, we are seeing a decline in fitness. It's tough, I will fully admit, as a coach to see that, right? Because we, we're here to help our athletes, and most of the athletes that I work with and the athletes in our circles are here to improve upon what they're doing, right? Um, and then it's that's a tough conversation about, well, we need to talk about your life stress, and we need to have a realistic conversation about your expectations. Is there anything you're not telling me? Laura, like you said, it's, it's not only that athletes may in, be intentionally withholding information, they just might be doing something that they just didn't think to mention. And, and, then, and then you ask them about it, they're like, oh yeah, but I, I started this weird cleanse diet. Like, hopefully not, because we hopefully provide some basic guidance on nutrition. But like, digging deeper and saying, you know, I hope it's not my training. I hope it's not what I'm programming. Um, if it is, we'll take a look and make some adjustments, but we have to look at this holistically. Yes. And that's why like, not to sound like a broken record, I think blood work is so important for athletes. I mean, iron needs are much higher for athletes because foot striking mellosis, microscopic bleeding in the GI gut, iron loss through sweat, menstruation for female athletes, And sometimes if we see that training is getting worse and worse, that is a very easy fix to go get your blood work done, whether you do it through Quest or Inside Tracker or your PCP. And if we see that your ferritin is below like 40, that's a really easy place to start and you'll see training feeling better. And I have had some athletes where it becomes like we do blood work and we're like, wow, your ferritin's in the toilet. It's like nine. Why is it nine? Please go see your doctor. And then they're diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. And that's why training is feeling so tough. And then we scale back, of course, but it's look at these low hanging fruits first. Look at your blood work. If it really is a concern, talk to a doctor, but sleep, blood work, nutrition, look there first. 
I agree. I have so many folks that if we're hitting that point, blood work is the first thing I go to. And then, as I mentioned, because I am coaching so many women in that peri and menopause stage, there is also this kind of getting used to the fact that there are like these waves of fatigue that hit as your hormones are shifting. And so how can we start to make a little more flexibility in the schedule. So on these weeks where you're feeling really like down, okay, skip all the speed work, just do the easy stuff. Hey, this week I didn't have speed work planned that day, but let's, you know, here's an option because you're telling me this week, like, yes, I'm on it and I feel really strong. But like you said, then it's also, okay, what can we mitigate around those hormones? So how can we improve your sleep at this point when it's maybe not always as good as we want it because of your hormones? Or I had one athlete, I have been coaching her for almost six years now. And for three of those years, I could not get her to carry water on her runs. And she lives in Florida. (laughs) So it was like this ongoing battle of like, I swear it will feel better if you will drink during your run. And now she's laughs at herself because she's like, my God, I spent three years of these runs not feeling well. Um, But I didn't know she was doing that to your point for a while. Like I didn't realize, oh, you're just not ever carrying water literally on any of these runs. And so it is a little bit of this detective work of kind of asking and trying to figure out all these different little pieces of like what else might be going on. So We've talked about this before, but just being willing to be super open with your coach um, and talk about whatever is happening, lifestyle, hormones, periods, food, and we can't solve it all, but at least then we have the pieces to say, okay, let's maybe go down this path, or I'd really like you to go talk to XYZ person. And I think like athletes think, oh, this is embarrassing to share, but I guarantee you we've heard it all and we hear it from so many people that you kind of, I guess, like any healthcare professional becomes sort of immune. You're like, sure, talk about your GI issues or your period. I, It's not gross to me. So I think getting athletes out of that fear is important. Like we're used to it. Yeah, same. I mean, I, I love getting comments from my athletes like this might be TMI, but I'm like, I guarantee you it's not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and because it's always like, well, I had to stop twice for the bathroom. Well, I'm like, did you was it do you have to pee or did you have like GI? Did you have diarrhea? Like because those two things, th- those things tell me something. Right. So it's like, you know, I might not be able to fix it, but it can it can add some information and, and be a piece of the puzzle where it's like and also what's normal. Right. Like, yeah, I, I occasionally I feel like I manage my hydration really well. And occasionally I do have to pee in the middle of my run. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you are stopping to pee five times for every hour long run, like that's not normal. So, you know, that spectrum of, you know, I like to say like once happens, twice could be a coincidence, three times a pattern, right? So if we're, if we're in the business of essentially trying to understand patterns if and as they exist, uh, that is when it's that's when we start to really uncover some interesting stuff. Let's talk about another aspect of getting slower before we move on to like the really serious stuff, because I, I have a, a, a couple, I have a question that I got that I think it'd be interesting to hear us kind of coaches be like, this is not normal. But before we get to that, I want to talk about, um, we talk, of course, the importance of easy running. If you know me, if anybody knows you guys, like obviously easy days, easy, easy days, easy. However, rarely should 100% of your training be 100% easy. Now, there are situations where it might be, but that's often not the case. Even in a base building period or even a period where you're doing almost entirely easy effort running, you should still be doing things like strides or hill sprints or whatever. But Oftentimes, when we have converted a runner into truly running easy on their easy runs, like you said at the very beginning of this conversation, sometimes they mistake having to run slower on their easy runs as a loss of fitness. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a situation where a runner comes to you and says, I am now running slower on my easy runs. However, the faster paces, the paces that I used to run every single day without an issue, those are feeling much harder. Does that mean that I am losing fitness because I am now running slower on my easy days? What do you guys think? 
That's always a fun one. Um, Cause I think then it's, we have to go back to what are all the other variables? Are you still doing strength training? How long has it been since you were doing speed work? What's that speed work look like? Um, are you doing a variety of speed work? So oftentimes as marathon runners, especially we fall into the trap of like, I just need to do longer speed work. So goal pace or just tempo. And we aren't doing the short, hard burst. Shoot. I fell into that trap for a long time. Um, and so, okay, maybe what we really need to do is shake up the way you've been doing your speed work a little bit and kind of work on that turnover a little bit again, or, oh, okay, you did also stop strength training. Um, and kind of, I feel like it's usually looking at the pieces there more than like your slowing down on easy days is actually what's causing the speed work to get slower. And I would add to that also, like, I see some athletes slow down their easy days finally, and then they feel so good on their hard workout days that they hammer them and they push their hard workouts beyond the purpose of the session. So say I gave them four by six minutes at threshold, and they were like, I'm going to race these six minutes, and it becomes this overreaching velocity at VO2 max workout, maybe once, fine, like, it's not going to harm you. But accumulated over a few weeks going too hard on your hard workouts, you're going to teeter into like the performance declines that may be just temporarily functional overreaching, which still can have negative consequences for some athletes. Like there's a 2020 sports medicine review that talks about down regulations that can happen. Or maybe they are in non-functional overreaching already. Even though their easy days are slow, you still need to appropriately pace your hard workouts. I've also found in that situation that for for runners who are like almost reluctantly slowing down to their appropriate easy zone on easy days, running super fast in their workouts, running harder than intended is almost like the it like provides them some like emotional and psychological mm-hmm. comfort and safety. Like, oh, look, I can still run super fast. So like it makes it OK and safe for me to run slow on my easy runs because look self like my ego is now intact because I have proven I can still run X, Y, Z pace on my faster days. And that also that's like a kind of a, a tricky place to be in. And I think requires some unpacking about the relationship we have with running and what the numbers mean and how we feel about certain things. Like so often these things become these rabbit holes. Like it's not ever just about the running. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot of athletes use it as self-validation for a lot of reasons that might be outside the scope of a running coach to unpack. I will also say if somebody comes to me with this question and you've only been running easy on your easy days for two or three weeks, that's not the situation here. You one, you're probably a little bit overtrained. Two, you're probably just now realizing how hard you've been running all your runs before. But this is something where if you've been if it's been three, six plus months and this is a situation, right? This is kind of the situation that we're talking about here. All right. Now this is a a a, a question that you never want to get as a coach, but I think it's important as we kind of go along the spectrum of like what's normal to like what's really not normal. And this is paraphrasing um, a, a kind of a amalgamation of I've gotten questions, obviously like half my job is answering questions from people, but describing a situation where a runner has been able to run certain distances at certain paces very recently and then basically had their fitness fall off a cliff for what seems like an unknown reason, right? So if you were able to run your easy runs without issue at nine minutes per mile, you've, you're a you know a, a 3.30 marathoner, and now three or four months later, you're barely able to run a 5K at almost any pace. Like this is so many red flags, I don't have enough hands for all of them. 100%. I feel like we've said blood work about 100 times now, but... <laughs> Like that is an immediate, like, you've got to see what's going on inside, um, kind of thing. And I know I've been in that boat either from hormones or ferritin or vitamin D, um, like things we don't even think about vitamin D, magnesium, like they're easily resolvable, but not unless you know that they're happening. Yes. Yeah. And then if blood work comes back normal, if you doctor doesn't find anything wrong with like your thyroid or your immune system or you know a whole host of diagnoses I'm not saying it's definitely thyroid I'm just saying there's a lot of things that could go on that sounds like overtraining like true we've gone past 
functional overreaching. We've gone past non-functional overreaching. And we are in overtraining syndrome where we see most of all a long-term performance decline where you just are in this hole that you can't get out of. And that's where, you know, assuming they've been medically cleared, we start to look at things like, are you feeling fatigued all the time? Have you had mood changes? Have you had libido changes? Has your appetite changed? Are you feeling like the same person you were? And if a lot of those questions are answered with yes, and again, like there's nothing medically wrong, that's probably overtraining syndrome. And we really need to proceed with caution forward to get that athlete out of there. And one of the interesting signs of overtraining is actually that you have trouble sleeping. So usually you've dug into this hole and now you are also doing that, well, I just need to do more to get back to where I was because that is what we have in our mind is like, okay, well, I'm just not trying hard enough. So you're trying even harder. And so you should fall into bed like just ready to pass out because you are doing more and more and more. And instead you have that like tired but wired kind of thing going on. You can't go to sleep or you can't stay asleep. Um, And like Laura said, it's fatigue. There's a broad spectrum of fatigue. There's, gosh, I'm just kind of tired today. My legs feel a little heavy. And then there is like, man, every workout is like so much and it takes all my mental effort to do it because my body is not ready. So then I'm probably taking some caffeine or something else and maybe I get through it, but then I am, I'm trashed for the rest of the day. I can't concentrate. Um, so the signals are there if you're just willing to be honest about like, okay, there's a lot more going on than the fact that my runs have gotten slower. And the hardest thing about being in that situation, and I mean, you can have, you know, uh, sleep disturbances and poor quality sleep before you even reach overtraining syndrome. Mm-hmm. It can happen in non-functional overreaching too. But then you're in that really terrible kind of catch-22 because you need, you need good quality sleep more than ever, and it is harder and harder to come across. So that's, I mean, that's like the... It's really hard to get out of, and that typically requires a serious look at training load and training volume and all the other recovery factors you have at your disposal, like appropriate nutrition and if there's any deficiencies you need to correct. You know, I like to kind of tell people with running, look, nothing happens overnight and nothing should happen overnight. And that means in both directions, right? Like, I'm not going to get 10% faster from any one single workout, but neither should I get 10% slower from any one single day. Um, so if you have experienced like what feels like falling off a cliff with your performance, like three months ago, I could do this and now I can barely do that. Like for me, that is that is like a huge, like there is something serious going on that has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, well, maybe the training volume and that you're doing too much, but like that's not normal. And the one thing I'll add to this that just popped in my head while you were talking, like sometimes also with athletes, this isn't the usual cause, but sometimes memory serves people poorly and they'll be like, oh yeah, I was doing like 40 mile weeks, felt super good. And then you really look through their training log and you're like, well, you were until this thing came up and now you've kind of had very inconsistent training and your memory is just kind of serving you wrong because you were, were in 40 mile weeks for a while when your performance was good. And then all of a sudden we've had three months of like, Maybe you're getting a couple three mile runs a week. You skip a bunch of runs. You aren't doing your strides or speed work training super inconsistent. And you're starting to see that manifest. That's not the usual cause, but I have seen that happen. And that goes back. I mean, I've seen, I've seen athletes, like you said, kind of misremember mm-hmm. or kind of not really understand how inconsistent they've been for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes these things tend to come in waves, right? Where it's like you're traveling a lot and you've experienced something's like, you know, going screwy life stress wise and, you know, and maybe it's super hot. Like all these things kind of tend to come together. But, you know, kind of this goes back to taking a lot of time off. It's that, you know, you may not realize simply how if you've been very inconsistent for three, four, six months of training for whatever reason, it is then unrealistic to expect that you'll be able to go back to what you're doing before that or to like be able to build on where you were previously because you're not where you were previously. You mm-hmm. were, you're where you are now. I think this happens a lot with those of us that have been running a really long time too. We have this like, oh yeah, I run like 40 miles a week, you know, like, cause that's what you did for a really long time. And then 
but there was a period where you stopped doing that. But in your head, I run 40 miles a week because that's what I have said forever. And so I do think that does happen, especially with people that have been running a really long time. We have like a sure, sure. That's what I do until you start actually looking and you're like, oh, okay. well, actually, that is not what's been happening lately. (laughs) So obviously, I think we've covered the gamut, right, of when to stay the course, what's normal, what's not normal, and some very common situations that we find runners in when they are in a situation of, I think I might be getting slower or I actually am getting slower. Obviously, kind of the Go back to the fundamentals. We've talked about nutrition. We've talked about sleep. We've talked about life stress management. Um, Let's talk very briefly as a wrap up and really help pound it into people's heads. The importance of not running hard all the time in all your runs. That is like the number one thing you can do. Even if you're sleeping the best and eating all the appropriate things for your needs and your life stress is non-existent. If you're going out and running five times a week at lactate threshold every single time, we're going to have some problems. And I feel like it's it's this sneaky little gray zone that is that problem because there's just enough ego in like the difference between your 10 minute pace and your 945 pace. <laughs> um, so just drop that and just am I enjoying this run? Like, could I chat with a friend? Can I look around and like, do I finish this and I'm able to get on with the rest of my day and like feel okay all day long? I think if we can put some parameters around like having fun and bringing the joy and enjoyment back to those runs, it can get a little easier to like stop yourself from needing to make everything so hard. Yes. Yeah. And I think it helps to also think about like, okay, yeah, you can do that run and maybe some of it's like, oh, I feel fine the rest of the day. And you're like, okay, but let's think about what's happening on a cellular level when you stack this long term. Um, So like your muscle cells are going to be broken down over time. There's going to be this muscle damage that you might not feel acutely, but it's going to stack up chronically. And that muscle damage is a driving mechanism of action in overtraining syndrome. Then also we have your nervous system, which I feel like a lot of athletes like to pretend their nervous system doesn't exist and it's just an issue of mental toughness. But quite simply, like even moderate efforts place more stress on your autonomic nervous system. There's more recovery involved for your nervous system. You keep going like that. Eventually you're going to have like your nervous system is going to be burnt out. You're going to see like decreases in output and, you know, both output in terms of performance and like cardiac output we just stop frying your body to a crisp for no reason. Slow down those easy days. And like I tell my athletes, as long as you have good form, you can't go too slow. And that's also tough too, because we're talking about stuff that takes a long time to manifest. And I see this so often with runners who are like, but it, it was working. Like Mm -hmm. it, I did this, I did this thing I was running this pace or in this effort zone for all my runs for months or maybe years. And just because it didn't become an issue sooner doesn't mean it wasn't an issue then. It just didn't get so bad that you then felt like, oh, maybe this isn't working. I need to do something different. Oh, yeah. And I feel like that's a common beginner's trap because like when you are a brand new runner, like less than six months, your body's not adapted to running. So you might be in zone three sometimes simply because you don't have like the cardiac output to run in zone two and yes you should use run walk to keep that down but then people kind of get in this habit of keeping that intensity but then their body adapts they increase their training load they introduce hard workouts stuff that adds additional stress so yeah maybe that pace was fine when you were running 10 miles per week as a novice but now that you're running 30 miles per week and you have a speed workout in there it's it's a different stress on the body Amanda, Laura, thank you for being here today. I feel like I need to fly out to Colorado and come on some of your runs with you because that would be fun at some point. Your podcast, the Tread Lightly podcast, available on all major platforms. You also have an Instagram account for it. But of course, you are also accomplished coaches in your own right. If you guys want to tell our listeners if they aren't following you already, which I hope that they are, where can they learn more about you as individuals in the show? Please do come run with us. Let's start with that. (laughs) And since Laura is your coach, I'll let her go first. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, if you need a place to crash, we don't have a huge house, but we have a sofa bed and chaos dogs. Um, but so you can find me on Instagram at Laura Norris Running. Again, follow at Tread Lightly Running for updates on the podcast. I share articles at laurenorrisrunning.com. And you can also find info about coaching there, although I'm kind of hanging on a wait list right now with select availability. Um, and I also have a newsletter that you can sign up for on that website. And I am at run to the finish on Instagram. That's the website. That's the book. That's the YouTube. I don't know. It's everything. Like I said, I've, I've been doing this for a really long time. Um, I do have a team of coaches. We are also at waitlist right now. Um, so that's kind of a exciting thing. I feel like in the last few years, we've seen a lot more people investing in a running coach. And I know you've seen that too, Elizabeth. I feel like it's a really cool shift. It is. And I feel like it's the normalization of just regular runners who want to get better at being runners, whatever that means for them, whether you want to get faster, you want to run longer, you want to just enjoy your running more. Um, since you guys are both on waitlist, I'll say we do have a couple spots over the writing explained <laughs> coaching roster, but it is filling up. I mean, I think I have six coaches Four of them are, are maxed out right now. Um, so this is exciting for all of us, a space for all of us to be in, just helping people try to get better at what they love to do. So thank you very much for being here today. Of course. Thank you for having us. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition. 